2: Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the
3: world, ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? Looking at the letter C. C is for Cracked Actor, the documentary. Ah uh, for
2: BBC's Omnibus series wasn't it yeah filmed on tour in the USA 1974 first aired on the 26th of January 1975 and I can remember so vividly uh, well all of the adverts coming up for this new program about David Bowie bearing in mind we'd not seen him for years in fact I'd never seen him at that point anyway right so the the excitement around it was just like you know it was palpable it really was it was we weren't seeing David Bowie on TV at all really you know you'd sit there week in week out hoping he would turn up on top of the pops and he didn't And he was in no state to fly back from America anyway, I don't think. So when this was announced, it was just like, it was a real gift, you know? It was something that would give us a bit of an insight as to what had been going on all that time since Bowie had gone. We'd see bits in the press, you'd see reviews of the shows and stuff, you'd see photographs,
3: but we didn't really know what was going on with Bowie at the time. So this was an absolute present. Oh, yeah, wonderful. I didn't see it till later on, but it is such an amazing piece of work in so many different ways. It was filmed mainly at the Universal Amphitheatre in LA, which has a 6,000 capacity venue, didn't it? Demolished weirdly in 2013 for the Wizarding of Harry Potter attraction at Universal Studios. Yeah, doesn't seem right, really. Initially built uh, for paying visitors who could watch stuntmen reenact western style shootouts.
2: Yeah, do you know, and also, in in saying that, I mean, a 6,000 capacity venue, so uh, the the stories were all that Bowie hadn't really cracked America, and it always surprises me that, because in my mind I would have thought of him playing to maybe a 2,000 people, but 6,000 capacity
3: and and bigger venues, I believe, he played as well. So he was actually faring all right, wasn't he? Definitely, he was. So a lot of the footage filmed uh, September 74, including, of course, clips from uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, the movie also known as Ziggy's Last Stand at Hammersmith Odeon in 73, which was filmed by uh, D.A. Pennebaker, which is a, a different kind of mood altogether, isn't it, that one? It showed the story of Bowie, though, didn't it? Because it showed you all of the theatrics and everything that he
2: had his mind on for mm. the Ziggy tour. So mm. there was, uh, they all looked great, and there was a light show, and the flashes on the stage and everything. Mm. But by the time you move on another year and a half, say, he's come up with this massive backdrop, an amazing theatrical scenario for the whole thing. But it was originally called The Collector, which apparently, uh, it references Bowie's thought as he was uh, telling to Russell Harty on his TV programme that he was a collector of accents. Now this is a weird one. There's a story that Brian Eno tells and we'll look at Brian Eno in depth mm. uh, but Brian Eno tells a story of how he and Bowie would never speak to each other in their normal accents. They would always be Derek and Clive or yeah. you know um, Pete and Dud or, but they would always be uh, have an affectation within there yeah. uh, which seems quite strange really but Bowie does that he often slips into different accents and we'll find out later on yeah. even when He's, uh, you know, he goes to Australia and then he'll start talking in an Australian accent, which is the worst thing. And I know, you know, I've met lots and lots of bands, and I had a, a band uh, in session for me just a couple of weeks ago, and they'd been to Glasgow the night before, and they were all speaking in a Scottish accent. Is next. that right? Yeah, uh, which is uh, the very. I won't name the band because it's it's not
3: right. No, that's fair enough. Don't I suppose be. in a lot of ways it was an extension of what Bowie was doing anyway. You know, when he was performing in the studio, you know, he would take, he would inhabit the character he was singing about. And Brian Eno has talked about this as well, hasn't he? Yeah. You know, know, sort of enacting somebody, pretending to be somebody.
2: The actual documentary, when you watched it, I remember I was a little bit fearful for him. Mm. So, I mean, and he's famous for introducing bits of David Bowie's career that we hadn't seen and weren't going to see as as luck wouldn't have it. But he was not well. He wasn't well. It was terrifying. I mean, you know, he's my idol. There's no doubt about that. And I'm looking at him sat in the back of that limousine. Mm. And he's terrified. I only imagine Alan Yentov's quite terrified. And um, and, and the bizarre stuff going on, like when he's riding around New York, and then all of a sudden there's a police siren coming up behind him, and he freezes. Mm. You can see the look of terror on his face. And he's uh, that paranoid, and obviously taking drugs, as everybody knows. He's obviously thinking that the police are going to come up beside him. And pull him to one side, and then take him in. Yeah, and and the look of terror on his face is just is like it's it's
3: haunting. It is. I mean, it's an amazing documentary, but it 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 has you know these episodes, a series of episodes, isn't it? There's a great scene, the one that always stuck in my mind, especially the first time I'd seen it, was the bit where he's in the back of the limo, travelling through, you know, the the sort of. Nevada desert, wherever yeah. it is, and comparing himself to the the fly that's just landed in his milk, you know, and you're thinking and he's got his hat pulled down over his eyes he looks so skeletal, doesn't he? He does and uh, I mean he says,
2: uh, you know what, what's the lines? he say, he'd put a bleeding wax museum in the middle of the desert you'd think it'd melt, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean he is in a different place altogether, yeah. as we know he wasn't he wasn't eating well and he was doing lots of drugs mm. and he weighed about seven stone. Yeah. So that those were really kind of like, uh, not highlights, but a really kind of a uh, memorable parts of the programme itself,
3: but also there's a bit where he's having the life mask done, which is is a brilliant part of it. Yeah, there is too. Very much he's kind of the Englishman abroad, that's what he's doing it's almost like a travelogue, isn't it? That's what's also fascinating, compelling about it too the worst thing is, I mean, uh,
2: and having a look at the, the footage that they obviously took of Bowie at the amphitheatre, and you're thinking, right, OK, there's more of this. And, uh, and working for the BBC, you know, I, I met Alan Yentov and he was doing a Q&A at the BBC one day. Uh, I'm going back a long while now, probably, ah, maybe 14, 15 years. Um, but uh, he was doing a q and I couldn't go to it because Mark Ratcliffe and I were on air. Mm. And so uh, there was a guy from the BBC who said, would you like me to ask Alan Yentob a question on your behalf? I was like, mm, right, okay, here's my opportunity, you know. Um, and so apparently he did ask in front of lots and lots of people, he shouted to uh, Alan Yentob, yes, he said, yes, there is something I would like to ask on behalf of somebody else. Mark has uh, said to me, uh, if you can find him some of the extra footage of Davy Bowie in America 1974, there's a butty in it for you. <laughs> which obviously, if you don't know the terminology, it means a backhander, yeah. which wasn't very discreet of him or me. Mm. And uh, But Yentob did admit that it had just been wiped. It had oh. been, they got rid of it, so they used Used what they needed yeah i mean they probably filmed i don't know they, they might not have filmed the whole thing but they will have filmed a lot of it. Absolutely. That would be priceless now. Absolutely priceless. Particularly for everybody, which is everybody outside of America
3: who never got to see it. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Bo himself got to see Cracked Actor years later, and unsurprisingly, he was shocked at his own appearance. There's certain quotes here. He said I was blocked. I was so stoned. It's quite a casualty case, isn't it? I'm amazed I came out of that period uh, at all. You know, he says, When I see that now, I can't believe I survived it. I was so close to throwing myself away physically Completely. Do you know what is also strange? He says, I
2: was so blocked, so stoned, it's quite a casualty, isn't it? He's referring to himself as it. Right. I mean, he just can't relate to the creature in, mm. that, in that film at that particular point in time. Uh, interestingly, Nick Rogue, who uh, obviously went on to work with uh, David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth, yeah. he saw Cracked Actor and he thought... That's
3: the man. That's the man. He's a man for the job. Interesting. We will go into Nick Rogue and The Man Who Fell to Earth later on in the episodes, but he, his first choice was actually Michael Crichton, the author who did Jurassic Park. Yeah. Uh, mainly because of his size, a very tall guy, and he saw him as the alien. He needed this sort of otherworldly creature, obviously, to play the part, lead role in this film. Then he saw a cracked actor. and thought, no, no, that's my man.
2: Funny because David Bowie wasn't tall. So he wasn't tall, he, but he did have a, the other
3: us about him. That was him, the as thing about him. He just seemed like a man out of time, out of a place, out of everything. Another great quote
2: from it was uh, Bowie is uh, just considering what's going on, and uh, you know he's watching Cracked Actor and looking at his life, and he says, "I never wanted to be a rock and roll star. Honest, Gov. I wasn't even there, but I was there. I was there. It's just uh, it, it, him sat there watching himself at that point of his life must have been so weird mm. for him."
4: The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob
3: Hughes and Mark Riley. C is also for Coco Schwab. Yeah, this is Corinne Coco Schwab. Now, this is interesting because in in this internet age where information is readily available to everybody at any time, it's very difficult to find information about Coco Schwab.
2: Yeah, I mean, I looked, I have to say, I wasn't on the online for days and days looking, but I mean, quite often you can get, like, you know, a Wikipedia or a mm.
3: biography, but I, I couldn't find any of the details of uh, Coco Schwab's background. Yeah, that's right. Same here. I mean, what we do know is she first met David Bowie in 1973, when she answered an advert in the London Evening Standard for a Girl Friday needed for a busy office, yeah. which had been placed by Main Man, which was Bowie's management company, owned by Tony DeVries. And after kind of six months of working for Main Man, she was offered the job as Bowie's PA, which became more of a vocation, didn't it? Because she was Bowie's PA for 43 years until he died. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the word
2: to describe uh, Coco Schwab would be omnipresent throughout David's life. The story is that apparently he had somebody working for him who was not really up to speed. Hmm. And so she was working in the office. He liked her and thought she had something about her and so offered her the job as a PA. So she was about to leave, apparently. Right. She was going to go off. She thought, right, OK, I've done this. That's great. I'll put it behind me and move on. And uh, Bowie thought that she had something, and offered her the job to just travel the world and be his companion. Little did either of them know it was going to be for, like you say, 43 years.
3: Yeah, remarkable. Bowie said of Coco, she became the most important person in my life in the mid-70s. In fact, it's been suggested... Uh, that without her Bowie may not have even made it to the 80s. Well, do you know the story about him in uh, in Berlin
2: and leading up to it, you know, also in L.A. And, yeah. co- and coming out the end of the Philly Dogs tour and everything, and he was notoriously not well. Yes. And uh, the story is that she actually kind of nursed him back to health, uh, mm. even to the point of like bringing him milk nutrients just to That's make right. sure that he could keep body and soul together. Yeah, orange juice. You know, cigarettes. Sex, so he's still having cigarettes. <laughs> <And> that that <laughs> did make me laugh, you know, because it is you. you, you it's obviously something he couldn't do without, yeah. but. I mean, really, yeah, all right, he's not well, he's he's lost all his weight, he's been in a terrible drug addiction, and bring him orange juice for some vitamins, and, mm. and you know, you've got the milk there to so just give him some fat. Oh, yeah, and he's a fag as well. <laughs> but he probably would have gone up the wall if he hadn't have had his cigarettes, because we should do C for cigarettes with David mm. Bowie, because I remember, you know, I'm not even being funny here at all, because it's not funny. I would see photographs of David Bowie with a cigarette in his hand mm. or his mouth, all, All the, the time. time. I was like an old man, age 14, 15. I'd yeah. be thinking. You gotta stop smoking, David. You you're gonna pay the price for it. So I
3: really did. Is that what you thought? I just thought yeah. he looked so cool, especially on the mid-70s shots, you know, with the orange hair and
2: everything. he it did was. look cool, he looked he was the coolest rock star ever, but I honestly always thought, oh, stop smoking. It's not it's really in good for because he had the, he was it was constant. And the stories were that he used to smoke like sixty, seventy a day. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even just like a, a passing phase, or it wasn't even just like, oh I'm gonna have a photograph taken. I'll put a sig in my mouth, and I think I look cool. Mm. He always had a cig in his mouth, and it was uh, it, honestly it was one of those things. But yeah, so I mean, she was omnipresent. If you yeah. look at any photographs of David Bowie, all that stuff with Iggy mm. when he was uh, when they were living in Berlin, and yeah. of course they were all living together in that yeah. flat. But Coco is always there, mm. and quite often, if you'll see a photograph of David Bowie somewhere where he's not in a, a shoot particularly, but just in an engagement on his way somewhere, on his way back from somewhere, you,
3: you look in the back if you know what Coco looks like, there's a very, very good chance that you will see her. That's right. And she, you know, beyond doing all that stuff and bringing in packs of ciggies and the rest of it, on a wider scale, she went off to Berlin and sort of, you know, scouted an apartment for him. Yeah. So she was doing all this kind of stuff. They were, in fact, rumoured to be lovers for a while, weren't they?
2: Yeah, they were. And uh, I think that I think that's quite well documented, to be honest. And I, yeah, I will say it throughout various uh, episodes of the podcast, but I met Bowie Nine or ten times, and I met Coco as a result quite often as well, and and she was great. She uh, the relationship they had was uh, best described as good cop bad cop. Okay, and it wasn't uh, either of the extremes. Mm. One episode when David came into the Radio One afternoon program, and we were we. were Just honestly having a laugh. He was such a great fella. And then Coco would put her head through the door and say, David, you've got 10 minutes now. He's going, yeah, okay, fine. And then five minutes later, you've got five minutes now, David. Right, okay, yeah. Right, David, we've got to go. He'd be going, oh, I'm having a good time. Yeah, but I'm sorry we've got other things to do. Yeah, but, I mean, just give me another half hour with the fellas. Honestly, he was that charming. Really? And then you're wow. probably thinking, get me out of here. But he wasn't saying as much, and Coco's like, no, David, really, we've got to be somewhere else in half an hour.
3: Let's go now. And he go, oh, right, sorry, guys. That's really nice. That's lovely, that. she, she I mean, she did lots of stuff. She kept, uh, you know, the feuding Angie Bowie at bay, didn't she, for quite some time. She did, yeah, you know. And, and he wrote, Never Let Me Down about Coco and that uh,
2: says it all really mm-hmm. and of course where uh, with David passing she was working with David right until the very end and so uh, Lord only knows where you know after 43 years where she is now she can't be in a, a
3: good place bless her no that uh, sense of loss must have been immense mustn't yeah. it
4: the A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley
3: and Rob Hughes. So, C is also for Leslie Conn. Now, Leslie Conn was a key player in Bowie's early years, as he was uh, Mark Boland's early years, as it happens. This is kind of the beginning of Bowie the Pop Star. As he once put it, though, he had a, well, he had a very self-deprecating sense of humour, did Leslie Conn. Right. He says, uh, I'm the only guy in the music business that started at the top and worked his way to the bottom. That's a great quote. Yeah, and there's a great bit. In one of the Bowie biographies by uh, Paul Trinker called Starman, he's described as a charming supremely scatty man, a short, lightly pudgy bundle of energy. Born December 1929 into a Jewish family in Stamford Hill in London. He was evacuated to Cambridgeshire at the outset of the Second World War, where he joined the Cathedral Choir in Ely, and this was his first exposure to music. He sounds like a character from a film, doesn't he? And it also
2: sounds like, you know, a lot of the people that Bowie was first involved with and everybody else in the mid-60s, It was just, they was surrounded by these real characters. Mm. So Ken Pitt was a character, let's like, say, worked with Sinatra and Dylan and all manner of People, mm. uh, but you know, you look at Don Arden yeah. and Peter Grant, and they're all these larger-than-life, lovable rogues mm. and chances Yes, like you know, we've had the story of people selling off contracts of David Bowie's management yeah. to landlords to get to pay back a debt yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but he just sounds like a really likable character. Where you've got the other side of the coin with people hanging artists out of
3: windows by their ankles. Now. Yeah, it was perhaps out of his depth. Maybe you know Leslie Conn, and you'd maybe question the wisdom of an artist taking on a manager who was called con, but you know that's a separate thing altogether. <laughs> he was a con artist Yeah, he was <laughs> indeed <laughs> In go. fact, he tried his luck as a comedian for a while didn't he?
2: Well, I love that, so he did national service in East Africa and organised concert parties, so we're looking at kind of a similar scenario to Ain't Half Hot One, which <laughs> nice. again, you've got to be of a certain age So uh, soon after, back in London, he met Dick James, who is one of those characters I was mm. talking about before, yeah. and who was kind of parodied in the Ruttles, yes. uh, the cigar and all that kind of kind of scenario and he gave him a job as a record plugger so then he moved into artist management and apparently had a rare ability to spot like you know young talent and he was way way ahead of all of the uh, the rest of the pack really by the look of it he could see potential in acts but
3: do you know you've already mentioned Mark Boland mm. one of them 17 year old David Boland The only problem is nobody else could see the potential at this point, so that was his problem. One of his mates was a washing machine magnet called John Bloom. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you are making this up. Now, this is bizarre, because John Bloom received a letter from Bowie asking for some help with publicity, so he passed him on (laughs) to... uh, Con. So, uh, describing him to Conn as a bit of a cheeky sod. But, right. I mean, obviously, this is Bowie's ingenuity, writing into somebody like, yeah, okay, washing machines, whatever, but you know, can you get me a job somehow? Well, again, Bowie being ahead of his time, because, you know,
2: like these days, I mean, it would have happened in those days as well, but these days, you will get bands and artists sponsored by Yamaha, mm. or, you know, various other companies who would be able to give them musical gear and get the, get the, the reciprocal arrangement, yes. if you like, but getting washing machine money, that's left of Field, isn't it?
3: Completely left field. So, anyways, he managed to get an audition for Davy Jones, as you know, Davy Jones and the King Bees, and thought he had potential. He actually booked them for a wedding anniversary party for Bloom at the club in Soho called the Jack of Clubs, but they were too loud, apparently, and Con had to stop the gig after 10 minutes. Not the best start. Not great, really, but he did get them a deal with Vocalion, which was part of
2: Decca in 1964, and they cut uh, Liza Jane, which was written by Con. So, again, you know, a pretty clever move on him because, Mm. I mean, if it had been a hit, and he would have got most of the money. Uh, the B-side being Louie Louie Go Home, originally by Paul Revere and the Raiders. But, yeah, it flopped, didn't it? And De- Decker kicked them off, which is kind of going to be a bit of a recurring theme. Uh, but he was chosen for the panel on Jukebox Jury. And, again, I'm sorry, if there's anybody listening to this podcast who is under the age of 60, then Charlie Drake might not mean much to them. But I know I grew up looking at I Charlie did. Drake. And he wasn't very funny. But he did, bless him,
3: voted it a hit. But oh. he, he was wrong. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, anyway, despite all this, Conn's pressed on, got Bowie gigs at the marquee in the roundhouse. Apparently, um, you know, £20 per session, that was a going race. Right. Probably isn't too bad. And when there were no gigs, here's the thing, when there were no gigs going on, he would pay Bowie and another of his uh, young charges, Mark Boland, to paint his office. This is a legendary story. This is. So Conn said the two of them, very similar. They totally believed in themselves, both of them. It was me that brought the two of them together. And they both had exactly the same attitude, which was, we're going to make it, no matter what. I Again, and uh, he, Bowie said himself,
2: didn't he? That they were friends, they were rivals. Then mm. they were friends again. Then they were rivals. It was a real roller yeah. coaster, to use that cliche with their relationship. But uh, yeah, do you know what? I mean, it, it's hilarious because Dick James he passed on David Bowie. And he passed on Mark Bolan as well, calling them both long haired gits. So, and and, and Con believed in Bowie. So, he, you know, he visited David's parents Mm. to get their approval, which again seemed so Dickensian and sweet. He wasn't going to be hanging him out of the office by his ankles, was he? You know, certainly not. uh, He got a five year management contract with an option for another five years and even a name change to Davy Jones with the Manish Boys. Failed to get people excited.
3: So he tried. He He tried all manner of things, didn't he? He was a trier, if nothing else. So uh, Bowie and Conn sort of parted on good terms. Bowie actually told him he was going to quit the pop music business forever to study mime at uh, Sadler's Wells. Conn also discovered The Shadows after seeing them playing uh, a gig, co-starring with Benny Hill, in Stoke Newington. So there's a claim to fame. Yeah, an interesting character. I'm sure if they did a biopic of him, it would be uh, most engaging and quite
2: quite funny. Yeah, it would be, absolutely. Uh, but uh, he also uh, he, he wrote The Viper, didn't he, for did. Freddie and the Dreamers? Mm. And uh, he promoted the careers of Petula Clark and Frankie Vaughan. He managed
3: Manfred Mann, ran Doris Day's publishing company and spotted Adam Faith and Georgie Fame. So no sap. No, not at all. Incidentally, he managed Manfred Mann because Ken Pitt who was Bowie's manager after this, also managed Man for Man for a while, didn't he? Did he? Right, he right OK. Did. Yeah. So by 1959, he was head of A&R at Decca. He finally got sick of the music business. He a why would you do this? He went to Mallorca. I mean, that's a great thing. He hit on the idea of doing 18 to 30 style beach parties. Right. So this is Leslie Conn. So he comes back to London then with a tidy fortune. So he's not made his name or his fortune in the music biz, but he's gone off to Spain and he's done 18 to 30 holidays. I mean, apparently when he was in Mallorca, he was on the phone to his mum, who was complaining about hordes
2: of old records that were stored in a garage, including a 100 copies of Liza Jane. Now, they agreed to throw them away, they now go for, well, a £1,000 a, a piece. or oh, at least. Quite easily. I know a guy who was in a band, and I'm not going to say who they are, and they, they only put one record out, and they pressed up, I think, 500 of them, mm. and it didn't sell anything. It just, nobody was interested. Right. It, was a, it was a power pop record, and, and so they ended up doing exactly the same thing. I think they threw away hundreds of them, and now it is one of the most collectible punk era records and goes for thousands. Really? In Japan, it's just mad. So it's just a, you know, it's a cautionary tale. To anybody out there who's got a bed, with a, most people have got a bed, with a load of records shoved under it, don't get rid of them. Put them in the loft. Oh, that just
3: made me sad reading that. All those little Liza Janes just going in the trash. Boy, if you hadn't thrown them away, it wouldn't have been worth that much money. So oh, I can see your reasoning you know, there, Mark. Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, whatever. Liza Jane obviously held a very special place in Bowie's heart because he recorded it again in 2000 for the aborted album called Toy, didn't he? He did.
4: The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley.
3: C is for Christopher Lee, the actor commonly known
2: as Dracula, born May 1922, died June 2015, aged 93, at which point people might have started thinking that he was actually a member of the undead. But he wasn't, sadly. He was mortal and he did pass away. From a hugely impressive gene pool, get this, Bob, his dad was Lieutenant Colonel Geoffrey Trollope Lee. That's impressive. That's impressive. His mum, Countess, that's hugely impressive, Estelle Marie. He grew up in Switzerland. His first role as Rumpel Now, wasn't Rumpel a small chap? I think he was. Mm. Christopher Lee wasn't. Mind you, I suppose it depends how old he was at the
3: time. He could have been in his teens, Mark. He could have been a toddler. Waiting for his growth spurt. We need to do some more yeah. research. okay. Anyway, whatever, however tall he was or not, he moved back to London. Then, through his mother getting remarried, he ended up as Ian Fleming's second cousin. Ian Fleming, of course, author of the James Bond books. Absolutely. Now, you might be thinking, where's all this going? I so, was.
2: So, absolutely. He became an actor, often associated with horror films, worked with Hammer. I grew up watching those films. I absolutely adore yeah. the appointment with fear at half past 10 on a Monday night It just that my life was so centered around all that I loved all the horror films. So he was a big kind of idol for me but yeah he was Frankenstein as well. He played the mummy. He was a governor really. He was yeah uh, but uh, one year later after doing Frankenstein in 1957 he played Count Dracula in Dracula. And that set him up for the rest of his career, really. Now, there are countless thousands of people out there who know more about David Bowie than I do. There is no doubt about that. I knew you no know, loads about David Bowie as well, but this is something that I didn't know until mm-hmm. very recently. Okay, and we've got to thank uh, Kevin Can, his book Any Day Now, which you know, 1947 to '74. We've mentioned it before. We'll mention it again. But I didn't know about this at all, and it's it's an entry into the actual book itself from a diary from the. 26th
3: of October. Go on, Bob. Okay. so this is 26th of October, 1971. So following a meeting with Christopher Lee, who has ambitions to record an album. He was a great singer, wasn't he? Was he? Yeah, he was. He had a great operatic voice. Jem's Lawrence Myers sends a draft contract with a covering letter to the British horror film Actors Address in uh, Cadogan Square in Mayfair. He says, I'd like you to listen to the enclosed records that were written and produced by David Bowie, who is also the artist. I think David has the talent and imagination to come up with something for you. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to give me a ring when you've had a chance to hear the records and we could maybe arrange a meeting between David and yourself. Yeah, and uh, David and uh, Christopher Lee, they did meet and apparently, this is a quote,
2: we both got on very well together and after David had played a bit on his guitar and I had sung, he asked me if I would like to make records with him. I said I would be delighted to do so, provided we could find the right material and this is where the whole idea came to a dead stop.
3: Oh, I wonder what the two varying kind of ideas were there.
2: Well, there is another entry, isn't it, in the diary, Tuesday the 23rd of November. Yeah. The plans for David and actor Christopher Lee to collaborate on an album come to nothing. Lee in Panama City, Mexico, received an abrupt telegram from
3: Jem, Cancel Bowie Session. Oh, it does make you think, though, doesn't it? Maybe this great gothic masterpiece, semi-operatic thing or something. It could have been an incredible piece of work. And he looked like, you know, you look at Bowie, he was just never satisfied, really. Well, he was always looking for something else to
2: do, Mm. something a little bit... Like he was bored half the time, really, looking for different kind of avenues to go down.
3: I did have the pleasure of interviewing Christopher Lee, albeit via email, which I know doesn't quite count in some respects, but he was doing, in the latter stages of his life, he was doing these strange um, sort of heavy metal records. That were sort of like symphonic metal. Right. So these vast, almost operatic, you know, with a very dark edge to it. And he was singing and he had a terrific voice. And he did say, I used to headbang every day. Well, that's David's Lawson.
1: The A to Z of David
4: Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes.
3: C is also for collaborations. So most of them, but not all of them, probably. We haven't really got time. So, 1972, he does all the young dudes, of course, Mott the Hoople, Bowie is the producer, the writer, and the saxophone player. Yeah, 1972, also Transformer, Lou Reed. 1973, Raw Power, Iggy and the Stooges.
2: 1974, Now We Are Six, Steel Ice Band, the idea being that he was recording in the studio next door, wasn't he? Mm. And there was just a, a knock on the door, and he used to hang around with some of the guys
3: from yeah. the Steel Ice Band, and they said, oh, we need some saxophone, would you be so kind? Oh, how nice. And he did. Oh, also 1974, of course, or Slaughter on 10th Avenue, which was the first solo album by Mick Ronson, Bowie's guitar player. Another main man artist, Dana Gillespie, 1974, weren't born a man. 1977, here we go, The Idiot, Iggy Pop is all over that, of course, is Bowie. 1977, Lust for Life, Iggy Pop. 1978, TVI, which is a live Iggy Pop album. Yeah, 1978, Davy Barry narrates Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. I've got that on green vinyl. Oh. Uh, 1979, uh, New York, London, Paris, Munich for M. Oh, he, apparently he puts hand claps on there. Yeah, you
2: see, I didn't know that. I don't know. Okay. Uh, 1980, once again Iggy Pop, the album Soldier.
3: 1982, Hot Space with Queen. 1986, blah blah blah, Iggy Pop. Uh, 1988, Tina live in Europe, which is of course is Tina Turner. Yeah. 1990, Young Lions, Adrian Ballou and back with Mick Ronson by '94 for Heaven and Hull. Yeah, 1995, The Sacred Squall of Now, Reeves Gabrell. Uh, also 1995, Ava Cherry and the Astronets, People from Bad Homes. Yeah, that was obviously recorded in the 70s, wasn't it, but took yeah.
2: ages to come out. We've got uh, 1999, Ulysses Delanotte. That's Reeves
3: Gabrels again. Now, uh, 2003, The Raven, which is Lou Reed, uh, I guess vocals on there. Uh, 2003, Breasticles, <gasps> Christine Young, Christine Young being uh, Tony Visconti's other half at the time. That's right. Also in 2003, Zigzag, which is Earl Slick's album. This is Bowie's older guitar player. 2005, No Balance Palace, Kashmir, guest vocals. And 2006, Return to Cookie Mountain, which is by TV on the radio. He's on backing vocals on Province. Yeah. Uh, 2008, Anywhere I Lay My Head with Scarlett Johansson. And 2013, Reflector by Arcade Fire. That's Bowie doing backing vocals on the title track. Mm, and if you notice, Bob, no Christopher Lee. Aw.
1: The A to Z of David
4: Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley.
2: See us for Bing Crosby, and also, funnily enough, for Christmas. Oh, you're right. right. So, 1977, Bing Crosby's Merry Old Christmas TV special. And already you're thinking, all right, I know where this is going. Anybody who likes Bowie has seen that the footage of David Bowie with Bing Crosby. It was an
3: unlikely booking, and it very nearly didn't happen, did it? That's right. So Bowie was booked on there, and you may wonder what, you know, how he came to be on there in the first place, but he was booked on there to promote Heroes, which is his current single, so there's a great bow. He's knocking on the door outside, comes in with his little scarf on, it's snowing outside. It's all very twee, as you would expect, for a Bing Crosby Christmas special. It wasn't going to be
2: anything else, really, was it? But uh, Bowie turns up, apparently, with a long mink coat on, and Bing Crosby's kids are there also, who were loving it. Obviously, there won't be toddlers. He was in his 70s. In fact, he wasn't far off death uh, and we're not laughing. Yes. So, uh, he's, he's, obviously, his children are, are quite old and they were really stoked, as toddlers say, about mm. seeing Davy Bowie and working with their dad. It must have been so great for them. And they do say that they uh, Bowie and Crosby had like a really good understanding of each other and a mutual respect. Now, if you watch the clip, you would have to wonder if that is completely true, because it seems as though Bing Crosby can't bring himself to look at Davy Bowie for the entire filming of, well, he was Little Drummer Boy, wasn't it? originally? Right. And Davey Bowie, he just, well, he said to the producer, I hate that song, so if you're going to do that song, I'm not going to be on the show.
3: So they came up with a compromise, didn't they, Bob? They did, Bowie also added, I'm only doing the show in the first place, because uh, my mum likes Bing Crosby. Fair enough. So, the compromise was, and this was done apparently within about five or six minutes, to do this sort of peace on earth middle bit that sort of uh, diluted what would have been Little Drummer Boy. A different arrangement mm. to it, that's right, yeah. OK, and so it's strange because
2: it was it was filmed early on. Obviously, it wasn't live, so it was filmed in September. And then, in the October, Bing Crosby did, as I've just mentioned, pass away. And, of course, it wasn't transmitted until sort of late November, so Bing never saw that. That's right, and, I mean, there is a very, very eerie comparison to be drawn with the Mark Boland TV appearance that David Bowie uh, had done on the very last episode of the Mark TV programme because because sadly, tragically, Mark Boland 2 died before that actually got aired, so there's a scary kind of comparison to be drawn there. But anyway, people have seen it before. We can't run a clip on here for legal reasons, but we've done. We've got some actors in to do just a, a recreation, haven't we, Bob? They're good actors, I think.
4: I think they've done yeah. a very good job.
3: Ding-dong! Hello, are you the new butler?
4: Oh, huh. well, it's a long time since I've been a new
3: anything. What's happened to Hudson? I guess he's changing. Yeah, he does that a lot, doesn't he? I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him. But come on in. Are you related to Sir Percival? Well, distantly, yeah. Oh, you're not the poor relation from America, are you? You
4: cheeky pup! Huh. You certainly travels fast. I'm Bing.
3: I'm pleased to meet you. You're the one that sings, right?
4: Well, I don't know. I sing either way. Well, I sing too. Oh, good. What kind of thing? Uh, mostly contemporary stuff. Do you know, um, do you do modern music? Bah, bah, Oh, I think it's marvellous. Some of it really fine. But tell me, do you ever listen to any of the older fellows? Oh, yeah, sure.
3: I like John Lennon. And the other one, uh, Harry
4: Nielsen. Hmm. You go back that far, huh? Yeah, I'm not as young as I look. Hmm. <laughs> None of us is these days. Ba-ba-ba.
3: In fact, I've got a six-year-old son and he really gets excited around the Christmas holiday.
4: You going for one of the traditional things in the Bowie
3: household at Christmas time? Oh, yeah. Most of them, really. Presents, tree, decorations, agents sliding down the chimney. What? I was just seeing if you were paying attention. Ha <laughs> Actually, our family do what most other families do. We sing the same songs. Yeah. I even have a go at White Christmas. You do, huh? Oh, this one. This is my son's favourite. Do you know this one? Oh, I do
4: indeed. It's a lovely thing. The A to Z of Davy Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley
2: and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that will be much appreciated. In the next episode...
3: Carlos Alomar, Cocaine, Chameleon of Rock, Changes One Bowie, Charles Shaw Murray, Cut-Up Technique, Lee Blackchilder's Keith Christmas.
1: Hold up.